Hello and welcome to an hour of retro. It's this week in retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Quirty nerds, FMV flavored sauce, and freescape in scum. All this and more coming up on today's show. It's this week in retro. Up to date news for out of date tech. Hello guys, it's episode 99 of This Week in Retro, just one show off the big 100, and we've got a very special guest with us today. It's Dan Wood from The Retro Hour. How are you doing, Dan? Hey, very good, thank you. Um, and I don't sound like I'm sucking up, but your podcast is genuinely one of my favourite podcasts, and it Aww. is a big part of my Saturday routine, whether I'm wandering around Asda with it on my iPhone or walking the dog in the forest. It's a uh, yeah, massive fan of your show, so it's uh, great to be on. So thank you for inviting me. That's super kind. Thank you so much, Dan. And it's it's kind of surreal. I, I can see Chris grinning from ear to ear there. Yeah. It's a bit surreal hearing that from someone like Dan, isn't it, Chris? It absolutely is. Because, I mean, yeah, when I, when I got <laughs> back into this hobby and had that pull of nostalgia, the Retro Hour and your channel as well, Dan, uh, were instrumental in sort of driving that. So to hear you saying that you listen to a podcast that I'm involved in is seriously blows my mind. So it's cool to have you on. Yeah, really cool. <laughs> Chris no, will be grinning guys through a great job. Yeah. So um, we've had some interesting comments in the last week. Um, the, the last show, uh, we were all compared to hard-boiled eggs on account of the uh, the four <laughs> bald heads with uh, Ross of the Robots joining us. So, Dan, thank you so much for bringing some hair along with you this week. Um, I, I, I've also been compared to uh, the Adri beer guy, oh. the guy on the front of this Adri beer bottle. I'm not familiar with that beer. Um, we'll put a link in the show notes. But I want to I extend an open invite to our listeners. If you've got any good lookalikes for us or Dan this week, um, leave a comment on the subreddit, reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro. We're looking for your best lookalikes. <laughs> Compliments. Um, if, we, if we can get past the egg stage quickly, please, but we'll, we'll see who else you can find. Um, and then the other big news and uh, a big reason that we've got Dan here as well is so that he can tell us about a really big project that he's launched this week. So, Dan, why don't you tell us what you've been working on? Yeah, well, we we do a podcast called The Retro Hour that we've done for uh, coming up on eight years. It will be in, in January, which is crazy. We, we are practically retro ourselves now, which is nuts. Um, but I know we've picked probably the worst time in human history to launch a Kickstarter, but that is what we're doing. <laughs> we're actually doing a book featuring some of our favorite interviews from uh, legends of the industry. So we've got people like uh, Nolan Bushnell in there. Uh, David Perry of Shiny Entertainment fame, uh, Jeff Minter, Trip Hawkins, Al Nilsson, Ken Williams is in the book as well. So really, it's a, a compilation of 10 of our favorite interviews from over 350 that we've done wow. on the podcast now. So it was quite a hard job narrowing it down to just 10 of our favorites. But there's also going to be features throughout the book as well to break up each of the interviews and hopefully a few exclusives that haven't made it onto the podcast yet. And uh, yeah, we've been working on this behind the scenes for about a year now. And uh, we want to make you know a really premium, nice coffee table book, something that's going to preserve the stories of these people and can live on for generations. So um, that's up and running on Kickstarter for uh, the next few weeks. So it is live now. Well, congratulations to um, getting to the stage where you can kickstart it because it's no small feat getting a book to that mm. stage. Uh, sorry, Dave, I inter interrupted you there. Go ahead. Yeah, when I was backing it, I noticed something. I recently got myself a, a hi-fi and I have a cassette player as part of the hi-fi and absolutely no cassettes and no reason to use a cassette player <laughs> this might give me one dan 
Yeah, well, that is one of our um, rewards on there that we're actually going to be doing uh, an exclusive episode of the Retro Hour that will only ever come out on an audio cassette tape. That's so, cool. Um, yeah, that's that's one got Rabbi's fingerprints it. all over it. That, that's got to be a Rabbi. <laughs> that that is <laughs> <laughs> Whenever I see Rabbi out and about in town, he's always got like a Walkman or a mini display strapped to his belt. So uh, yeah, it's definitely a, a Rabbi thing. Yeah, well, it looks like a fabulous book. Um, like you say, a, a full-color coffee table book. The chapter that is really standing out for me that I'm looking forward to reading is Wild Bill Steely, former fighter pilot and Microprose co-founder. And I know that appealed <laughs> to Chris as well. So looking forward to that one. And um, as we record this, you're looking at 202 backers. You're about mm, about 40% of the way, 10,000 yeah. of a 25,000 pound. In, in a few days, it's, it's only just launched. Mm-hmm. with 26 days to go so um i mean i'm pretty confident that you'll make that but let's not make any assumptions so if this interests you the link will be in the show notes or it's kickstarter.com forward slash projects forward slash retro hour forward slash the dash retro dash hour dash book i'm sure there's a shorter url we can find but uh, <laughs> using the, the link in the show notes or that you'll find your way to the retro hour book give it a back in and um well hopefully this will be the first of many because you've got so many interviews under your belt with so many interesting people uh you could make um a whole shelf full of these books but it's got to start somewhere so go and give it some support guys so uh, good luck with that dan um, thank you very much Chris, how's your week been? Tell us all about it. Well, not so much my week, but rather what's happening right now. When I say right now, I'm talking about at time of this episode going to where I'll actually be at the Perth Amiga Users Group meet uh, for November 2022. Um, and I always look forward to these meets. Apparently, there's going to be an A1200 up for auction. I don't need another one, but I'm sure I'll put some bids in. Um, there's always good raffles and competitions. <laughs> and I'll be showing my game, you know, the game that I made for Rich. Obviously, I have my own copy, so I'll be showing that at the meet as well and i believe dan you'll kind of be there is that right yeah unfortunately not in person it is no, a, a bit of a right. trek from nottingham here in the uk <laughs> um yeah but i'm going to be dropping in virtually yeah matthew um from the the group invited me so fantastic i'm going to be doing a, a, a virtual appearance this weekend so um yeah it'd be nice to that's what i love about i mean i love retro technology but Modern tech's amazing as well. The fact that I can drop into a user group meeting the other side of the world. Yeah, exactly. From my room is like incredible. Yeah, it's a great venue we use as well, but they clearly haven't told you about the Wi-Fi issues. Other, than, it'll be fine. It's going to work fine. <laughs> yeah, it'll be be really cool to see you there. Cool, Dave. Yeah, Dave, put your penny on. It's time for your housekeeping. <laughs> it is. Yeah, this, I'm guessing this is a section now forever. Um, we booked some more guests. We have, uh, I think, we've got eight more guests coming that are either already scheduled in or have agreed to come in over the next two or three months. Some really interesting ones uh, coming. Um, most of them have here, uh, thanks to the requests we've had that over the weekend. Most of the guests have here. Uh, we've agreed a sponsor. You'll hear that soon enough. And there is a wonderful thing done by um, Deadlock. Um, what he's created for us is uh, he's created a PDF index of all of the episodes of the podcast, along with what the what's in them, along with the the, the images pulled there, and it's all done. Um, I was just saying mechanically. That's not the right word. What's the right word? Dynamically. I'm for? Dynamically. That's it. Dynamically yeah. generated. So it does it by itself. It's a 
uh, it's a robot that, that creates this PDF. It's fantastic. I mean, it's a huge thing. Thank you very much for doing it, Deadlock. He's actually done it for a few um, retro podcasts now. Uh, we're on the list there. Um, there will be links, of course, that Duncan will put in the show notes that will take you to Deadlock's thing. It, it is great. I mean, it really is great. Thank you so much for doing it. Fantastic. Good. Um, as so many people are interested in the hair chat, just a couple of questions for you guys. When did it go? When did you when did you have to first shave your head and accept your your bald future? I'll, I'll answer that first. I'll, it was I, I saw a photo of myself that we'd taken for some project or whatever at work. It was a behind the head shot. And I found myself looking at this photo going, what's my dad doing there? <laughs> because it looked like the back of my dad's head, this bald spot, hair around the edges, and I'm like, nah, I've just got to accept it and shave the whole lot off because I'm not having the monk look. I refuse to have the monk look of just hair around the edges and down the back and this bald patch growing yeah. forever larger up the top. So, yeah, that was me. Is that How old were you then, Chris? Oh, I'm old- trying to think. So where am I now? Probably about 40 yeah, probably about 40. That's when it happened. Oh, 40. You made it to 40, yeah? yeah. yeah. 15 years ago. Well, that's when I noticed it. <laughs> <laughs> I was getting out of a car. My brother said to me, um, it's time to start shaving your head. Um, there is still hair there, but it's the finest hair. If I look in a mirror and I don't move, I can see it. But if there's a picture taken, it just vanishes. And I end up with a, the crusty the clown look. So, yeah, that was maybe about 10 years ago. 10 years ago, yeah. I think I was about 28 when I accepted my fate. Uh, just it, it was the front, not the back. The hairline was just going, and I just thought, okay, it's time. Turning away from your my face. Brother, my brother had gone by about the age of 23, 24. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was, it was pretty inevitable in the family genes. So there we go. We all stare at De- Dan with envious eyes. <laughs> uh, anyway, that's enough bull chat for this week. <laughs> Look at it, lustrous. At least you guys don't have to do your hair in the morning, though. You know, it must save time. I think that's true. I did spend a lot on product. There was even a point when I was straightening my hair. That's so. Yeah, don't what? miss that. I used to spike yeah. it. I used to have a <laughs> yeah. flat top. Anyway, on that bombshell, <laughs> let's move on to today's first story. Our first story today, uh, it's going to involve me trying very carefully not to step on minds because I know there's a hardcore community of enthusiasts around this particular topic. It's the humble keyboard. The input device that despite efforts over the decades has never found a, a mainstream way to be massively improved upon, or at least the layout of it. The, the, the QWERTY in this part of the world, Azerty in other parts of the world. As somebody who's had to travel and support um, systems around the world, anyone else who's done that will know my pain. When you turn up an office as the IT expert and then you start finger typing because all the keys have shuffled around with a different international layout, it's incredibly frustrating. Anyway, um, to me, when I choose a keyboard for my own machine, it's trying to balance out usability and cost, like most technology, I guess. I'm not a fan of the very low action desktop keyboards that grew out of developments of the laptop world. I think you get a lot of those in the Apple Mac world, those super low action keyboards. Um, Not a fan of a cheap spongy keyboard, but I just can't bring myself to spend hard cash on a keyboard that costs me more than some of the key components inside the PC itself. Um, Other people though, they, they don't appear to have such a problem with dropping a huge amount of cash on their input devices. So let's have a quick check with you guys. How much would you say you spent on the keyboard that you're using right now, Dave? I think about £150. It's a Ooh. it's a DAS keyboard. DAS keyboard Pro 4. Um, 
It's great. It's got Cherry MX Brown switches, which are the best switches in my opinion, but only because I've not tried very many, and I'm, these are the ones I'm going to stick with. But I'm annoyed with it because inside, when you take it apart to clean, there's an internal ribbon, and it's just held in by friction, and it's copper painted onto a plastic thing, so it wears off. So I've got bodge wires on it. I'm going to have to put more bodge wires on, but yeah, um, definitely worth it to have a good keyboard. Hmm. Dan, how about yourself? I've actually got the exact same keyboard, yeah, a desk keyboard 4. Oh, wow. Um, right. which I went for the uh, the Cherry MX Blues as well, so you can hear those. Very loud. Yeah. And uh, generally keep my wife awake at night when I'm hammering away on this keyboard in the next room. So uh, yeah, it doesn't make you that popular with the neighbours, but it's got a <laughs> yeah, very satisfying sound to it. Excellent. So you've both spent about £150 on a keyboard. Chris, help <laughs> yeah. me out here. Take, take us back to the lower end. What are you using? I will take you back to the lower end. And look, I've got an, I don't know if I can pull it up high enough to get it on camera. It's an RGB. Looks like a gamer's oh, it's got key. Red yeah, but actually, it's just a Cooler Master. It's the cheapest one I could get. I think it was about $40 for the, um, so about £20, sorry. Um, for the keyboard and mouse combo. They're wired. I, I'm, I'll be swapping it out for a, a wireless um, Did that solution include batteries? Soon? No, it didn't have <laughs> batteries. Because um, I, I, I wanted to swap it out for a wireless keyboard, but basically it looks nice. It's not the greatest keyboard, but it was cheap. Does it work? Yes, it does, and that's all I need. <laughs> yeah, that's me. Does it have like a special Cooler Master app so you can change the RGB lights? No, it has a button on the keyboard that you have press. Have you ever installed the it app? It has a special <laughs> button that you press and it changes the colors, which I'm doing for myself. You can't see that. It doesn't matter. There we go, purple. I can't see, you that. see no, purple. No. There you go. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Chris. So I've got to say, I've always, been about, I've always been about wired keyboards as well because wireless keyboards always run out at the oh, worst possible oh, yeah. moment. There's green. Yeah, you can yeah, do green. For sure. <laughs> Fantastic. Can your £150 keyboard do colours? Uh, no, unfortunately uh, no. not. You guys are useless. <laughs> I've, never had, no. I've never had to bodge this to make it work, keep working either, so that's interesting. <laughs> I'm personally using right now a Cherry MX Board 3.0. It cost me, I think, about £55 to £60 three or four years ago. I'm seeing it on Amazon today. I looked it up. It's about £70 now. And even that makes me wince. When you go into the realms of £150, I'm thinking, well, oh, I could get a decent SSD for that or something like that that I would rather spend my money on. But I have to say that this one has served me very well. It's got the cherry brown switches, which I think, Dave, you mentioned brown switches. Is yeah, that right? cherry brown, yeah. So it's got yeah, a nice um, amount of some... clack without being too yeah. annoying, yeah. 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 Did you try the others? Because I, I can't say I've tried the reds and the blues to, to really say I know the difference between them. There are there are different switches other than cherry, but I've tried the cherry, blue, red, and brown. I think brown are somewhere. I'm gonna get comments for for saying this, but I think in my head that brown are somewhere between red and blue. So red are the ones with no clack really, and blue are the ones with lots of clack, and, and brown are somewhere in the middle. I think that's accurate. But there are other manufacturers. There's much more. There's much more variety out there, and maybe there are better switches that I just don't know about, but this one is great. Yeah, and Cherry seems to fly the flag, because even when you see other ones out there, they're advertised as being Cherry compatible, so they can drop into other boards. So, you know, Cherry seems to be the one that everyone measures their quality by, um, and uh, something that keyboard enthusiasts can get quite obsessive about, which switch is the best, what has the right balance of click and the clack, what requires the correct amount of pressure to push them down so that it's satisfying to type with but not too fatiguing on your fingers, how long or short is the action, and of course, 
are they even available? Because we're not just talking about new switches. Some keyboard connoisseurs favor vintage switches, which are no longer manufactured. And I think this is where our experiences intersect quite well, where vintage tech meets modern keyboard builders, because we've all laid our hands on retro keyboards that feel great and others that feel like, well, to be honest, the dead flesh of a ZX Spectrum. So let's not beat about the bush over, uh, <laughs> over <laughs> too much nostalgia. I certainly don't get nostalgia over the dead flesh of a ZX Spectrum. But saying that, it's nice to load a tape with that keyboard, isn't it? And then switch over to the joystick, maybe. I, I don't know. This is It all depends on your own personal nostalgic experiences. But guys, thinking about vintage computers, do you have any favorites when it comes to keyboards on those old machines? Um, Dave, let's go back with you. I have a, a confession to make. IBM Model M keyboards. There was a period where my dad was bringing them home from the office and they were junk to be thrown out. And he said, do you fancy this? Yes. Lovely keyboard, buckling spring. I would use it. It would get dirty, and I would throw it out and get another one. Because they were basically free. And I don't know how many I went through that way over a period of years, but they were basically free, and I thought they were of no value at all. I'd kill to get those ones back now. Um, I do have a mechanical keyboard on the way for my Apple IIc. Um, it does light up. I didn't. It was an extra fiver or something on the Kickstarter to get it light up. But it's it's um, mechanical keyboard for the Apple IIc, which would be nice. And I'd really love to get a Mega ST keyboard. I've got a Mega STE, and the keyboard for that isn't wonderful. It just feels like a a fifteen quid USB keyboard. But the Mega ST keyboard is a lot nicer and it's compatible. So I'd love to get one of those. But they're so expensive. You're talking a couple hundred and fifty quid to get one somewhere. So I is don't know Mega if I'll be able to get one of those. Is the Mega ST the desktop with the separate keyboard? That's the one, isn't it? Both, yeah, the Mega STE and the Mega ST are both big box STs, so they're both separate. Yeah. The Mega STE was the later one, which is in the same housing as the Atari TT. Uh, the Mega ST is the one with the kind of the pizza boxes that match the hard drives. Right, yeah. So I've got the Mega ST, and I do have a keyboard, but it's got a German keyboard layout, so it's a little bit. We've They're much more common, yeah. Over it. yeah. Yeah, yeah. German and German and French keyboards are much more common. I would want the English one, or nothing, nothing at all. I think. Hmm. How about you, Dan? Any vintage keyboards that tickle your fancy? Yeah, I've got to say, I always like the look of the Atari ST keyboards. You know, those slanted function keys. Mm. I always thought they were really stylish. Um, so yeah, I've definitely got some love for the Atari ST keyboard. I mean, my first machine, I'm holding this for the video version, was uh, the Commodore Plus 4. I always like the um, the cursor keys on this as well. They were separate cursor yeah. keys, with small little arrows, which uh, unfortunately not many games used back in the day, but I always thought that would have been a, a nice alternative to a joystick, had more games supported it. Um, but I think for me, I remember I, I wasn't ever lucky enough to have a mechanical keyboard as a kid. But I remember borrowing a friend's CDTV, the Commodore CDTV, and uh, he had a keyboard with that as well. And those kind of higher-end Amiga keyboards that really, I mean, there weren't anything special, but they had that kind of nice texture to the keys that were um, they felt a bit more rough on the fingers than the Amiga 500 and the 1200 keyboards. So they always felt a bit more um, premium than what I was used to. So I was a fan of those keyboards. There's a lot of things with keyboards, like the texture of the keys, that you don't even realize you need in your life until you try it or until you move on to something else and you start to miss it. And just something as simple as the texture of a keycap can be it. Dave? Yeah. Yeah. Is there? Am I right in thinking that the Amiga 500 had 
a really nice keyboard in the really early ones. Is that right? Mm. That's yeah. right. So that's the, uh, the the chicken lips version of the A500. It had a, a chicken lips badge on it before it switched. And those early, early ones had a mechanical keyboard. Mm. Um, and I've got two, but I've got zero working ones. So if we go all the way back to the A500 Trash to Treasure that I did like five and a half years ago, I picked up an Amiga 500 on Spock or Gumtree. I think it was Spock. It was £20 for an Amiga 500 with a Philips CRT monitor. You could rip it off. Went, and I picked that up <laughs> and I got it home. And when I got it home, I realized it was one of these rare chicken lips ones and it had a mechanical keyboard. And um, it didn't work and I never got it to work. I got the system working, but not the keyboard. But just typing on it, just that extra little bit of clackiness mm -hmm. just raised the feeling of quality on the whole A500. And I wish they'd kept that throughout. Um, so I haven't got a working one, but I've kept all the keycaps from that. So if I ever come across a, a German one, perhaps, or something, I can swap the keycaps over and get myself a working one because it's so nice to type on. So um, that would have been one of my picks, that one definitely. And also uh, a big fan of the Acorn Electron keyboard. Um, it's a very small device, so you haven't really got anywhere to put your wrists, um, you know. But are you, are you tapping one there, Chris? That was exactly what the sound that sound was. Tapping. Very distinctive sound. Electron? Yeah. That was an Electron. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I do like the Electron. So those would be my choices. Um, yeah. So, I mean, a lot of the keyboards that we're talking about were mechanical ones. And you'll find that company, Cherry, again, um, with anything to do with mechanical keyboards. And they've announced this week, we're finally getting to our news story, guys. Sorry about <laughs> all the waffle. <laughs> the news this week is that Cherry have announced the revival of a switch called the MX Black Cleartop. Uh, also known by the nickname of Nixies, as Cherry produced these switches originally in the 80s for Nixdorf computers. And the key difference is all about the spring weight, apparently. The article reads, the bottom force is a bit lower, but the actuation bottom force, force <laughs> is a touch higher. And if that doesn't get you hot under the collar, Dave's already <laughs> Dave's already getting turned on by this keyboard chat. Let me read the next bit for you. Cherry will make two versions of the retro switch, one with factory lubricant and one without. The unlubricated version is for enthusiasts, many of whom want to carefully select and apply lubricant to switches themselves. It's too early for this chat. <laughs> the pre-lubed version will be fine for all but the pickiest. <laughs> it'll have the <laughs> it'll have the Crytox GPL two zero five grade zero lubricant inside. There you go. Is the thought Myself. of unlubricated keys stirring anything for you, Dave? It certainly is. What are your thoughts? <laughs> um, I, I am I am delighted that they are producing something that people seem to seem to want to buy. So I, I'm delighted there. I, I will take the high road here. I yep. will not talk about the lube and all the rest of it. No, I, um, <laughs> if that's what people want, I, I was I was intrigued by the name Nixie because it it, it has no relation to Nixie that I know of. That you know the, the the lovely displays with the numbers on it. Um, they go in the Nixie, Nixie clocks. clocks and so on. Hmm. Yeah, nothing nothing to do with that. Yeah, uh, apparently this lubrication is a thing because I looked on eBay to see if I could find any original Nixie keycaps and I couldn't. But there are lots of keycaps up for sale. 
with a drop-down box on the eBay listing for lubricated and unlubricated. Mm. So this is a big thing in the keyboard world, apparently. We're just sort of peering in from the outside. I don't think any of us are mm. experts in this field. So if any of our listeners want to inform us about the importance of keyboard lubrication, then I'd love to know more because this is genuinely the first I've heard about it, I have to say. And if these Nixie switches are for you, they are now available for pre-order. They work at about 60 US cents per switch. So that would amount to about $62 for all the switches on a standard 104, 105 key keyboard, which um, as hardcore hobbies go, that doesn't sound too bad, to be honest. You know, you'll need a bit more for the keyboard itself and the, and the cap. So we'll probably get into around $100, which is still cheaper than your £150 keyboards, um, if that's the switch for you. Uh, Cherry are also marketing this as a retro switch with the, with the strap line, powerful, direct and retro which is, is always how i've described dave as well and you can find a link in the show notes to the story if you'd like to pre-order your own and please also do go easy on me in the comments you hardball hardcore keyboard fans go easy thank you <laughs> sega saturn guys before i get into this next story uh briefly tell me about a sega saturn game that you've played uh dave the only one I've ever played is Power Slave, and I played it emulated. Power Slave is the the the, the name. It was changed to, I think, it was changed to Entombed. Is that it? Entombed, Exhumed, mm-hmm. Exhumed, Exhumed. I've got it on my shelf for the PC to play. Um, it was an I, FPS, I the, wasn't it? Yeah, an FPS, Egyptian theme one. Um, I didn't play it for I didn't play it very long, so I've got the I've got that to play, and I think there's a there's a remake either out or coming out for it. So I'll, I'll look forward to playing that eventually. Nice, Dan. Yeah, I didn't have a Saturn back in the day, but I picked one up in like the last decade or so. And I think playing games like Tomb Raider and Wipeout on there always feel a bit kind of bizarro world, you know, because you're that used to playing them on the PlayStation. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's quite an interesting experience playing those games on there. I mean, there's also stuff like, you know, Nights into Dreams that I think is a really nice experience on the Saturn. So I think in many ways it was a bit of a an underrated system, I think. Yeah, definitely. What about yourself, Neil? Yeah, I, I didn't have one back in the day. I didn't have one back in the day. I had a friend. It was one of those friends who always bought, you know, the consoles as they were launched, seemed to have more money than sense, rushed out and got a Sega Saturn with a whole bunch of games. Um, Nights into Dreams was one that he played a lot, Daytona, Sega Rally. So I played those over at his. But more recently, I've been really appreciating the 2D games on the Sega Saturn, um, in particular Outrun, which has this, special 60 frames per second smooth mode which you 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 put in a secret code in the menu to unlock it and then you get this super smooth mode which is lovely um and power drift as well plays really well that that's both of those are arcade perfect on the sega saturn yeah i'd agree um, so yeah i'm appreciating the 2d library nice nice yeah it was daytona for myself and i remember it was just this one particular party at a mate's house graham and party lots of drinking happening and it was right at the end when i would have been at peak drinking uh, that i actually got the fastest lap time beat all my mates and then had to leave so i, I would never ever condone drink driving but <laughs> fastest lap time completely drunk fantastic <laughs> um, but anyway but you know when, when you think back to the, like the 80s and 90s there was kind of this split well what i see as a split between like the movies that we watched and enjoyed and the games that we played and that split really was in terms of visual quality and what i mean is you know through the 16-bit era and into the 32-bit era yes we could play increasingly engaging and interactive games and the graphics were getting better and better 
But there was always this vast chasm between the visual photorealistic quality of a movie and even the very best video game graphics of the time. Enter into that chasm the attempt to fill the void that was full motion video games. Now, these really started to surface thanks to the extra storage facilitated by CD-ROM format, keeping in mind that even compressed video on CD looked better than most of the you know movies that we're used to watching at home on VHS. Um, actually, I have to stop myself here. When I was writing these notes, and I don't know why, this does happen from time to time. Sometimes when I'm writing notes and, and getting them ready or scripting, I, I can hear another YouTube presenter's voice. It may be, you know, LGR or it may be Neil sometimes or it may, you know, be um, Nostalgia Nerd. On this particular occasion, it must just cause it, be because I knew you were coming on, Dan. I just heard your voice reading through my script notes. It was the most bizarre thing. Does that happen to any of you guys? <laughs> it's just me, isn't it? Um, I have to say, when I recently binged... No, no, when I recently binged Tom Scott videos mm. and then I started writing my next script, suddenly the words and the pacing and everything and, and just reading it back happened in his voice. Yes. It was very odd. Yeah. And my video was probably all the better for it. Yeah, true. <laughs> yeah. Oh, if we could... Maybe subconsciously as well, Chris, you knew that I'm actually a, a fan of those terrible FMV games. I am, Is that uh, right? Yeah, a bit of an aficionado <laughs> of those uh, awful games. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm glad it's not just me that's hearing other presenters' voices in the head. But anyway, move, moving on. So yeah, back in that time, there was a real explosion of CD-ROM-based systems at that time. So you've got the Sega Saturn, the, the Mega CD, which is, of course, an add-on to the Mega Drive, the Philips CDI... Panasonic 3DO, the Amiga CD32, uh, the CD TV before it, Neil. So you're jumping up and down on my other screen. Sorry, can you just say that first system name yeah. again, Chris? Sega Saturn. Sega. Sega. You had a list of systems. Just... Oh, well, that's no, better. That's better. What did I say? I'm sure you went you <laughs> went Did I Australian. say Sega? Yeah, yeah. Oh, Sega. I'm going to have to apply for citizenship yep. soon. <laughs> Sega. <laughs> Where did I get to? Amiga CD32, yes. <laughs> and of course, you had the CDTV before it, but that was fairly limited in terms of its FMV. The Sony PlayStation, and I do believe about three people even had the CD add-on for the Jaguar. Um, but going back to the Saturn in particular, uh, Bajaco6502 on the subreddit kindly pointed out a, a nice story on PCGamer.com about a lost unreleased and apparently saucy sci-fi themed full motion video game for the Sega Saturn called Sacred Pools. Um, the article by Richard Santon describes it as a bit of a, another night trap. I'm sure we, you're all familiar with that title and that it used uh, the lure of lots of scantily clad female actresses to help entertain the probably mostly teenage gamers. It's sci-fi themed and there's actually a six minute long video where you can see the movie like opening scenes, which actually look quite good, and some of the action sequences as well. Uh, and that's available on YouTube. Doesn't look as saucy as I was expecting, uh, unless maybe these are YouTube friendly clips that were being shown. Um, but I can now kind of appreciate the effort. I was never, ever fooled by the lore of FMV games. So, Dan, I'd be interested to get your input on this in a moment. Um, but I can now watch this, <laughs> you know, watching this YouTube video back, I kind of can watch it through rose-tinted glasses and and feel the pull to play something like this and to finally, maybe it's time to finally put myself through the pain of, of an FMV game and appreciate it for the limitations of the time. Uh, Dan, I actually believe you guys covered this same story on the Retro Hour last week. So, yeah, int very interested to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I think for me, the, the lore of FMV games was just because I hadn't seen 
real people mm. on a video games console before, and I still got a vivid memory. It might have been Comet I went into with my dad, and I think it was a Philips CDI or a Mega CD, just seeing actual video running, and my jaw dropped, mm. even though it was probably like a postage stamp in the middle of the screen. But um, ever mm. since that day, FMV always really impressed me. And even now, I've got stuff like uh, you know, the Real Magic FMV card for the PC. I've got one installed on my 486. I've been exploring some of those uh, really badly acted mid-90s FMV games on there. I actually made a video about them on my YouTube channel a while back. Nice. Uh, but yeah, I, th I think just the fact that it just felt like such a leap, even though you know at the time we thought all games are going to be like this one day, they're very limited because obviously it's uh, you've only got certain choices that the actors have actually played out. So um, there's not much gameplay in most of those games. But yeah, we, we did cover this on the Retro Hour last week. Um, and it looks a bit like, I mean, Ravi on our show compared it a bit to uh, an FMV version of the Crystal Maze. So I think you wander around collecting <laughs> crystals in it. So uh, yeah, it, it looks. I think it looks quite cool. I'd like to play it. Um, but apparently they lost a fortune on it. Wasn't it like two to three million yeah, or something like Sega spent on yeah. it? And before it got abandoned, yeah, so right. hiring all those actors in a studio and a film set, obviously it wasn't cheap to do. Mm. Yeah. Neil, what do you reckon? Well, it's interesting. Um, you mentioned that the video at the time was the same or better than a VHS to you. But I remember Dan just mentioned the the real magic cards, and I remember those being advertised. So when I was playing games like Return to Zork, I was seeing adverts for these FMV cards thinking, well, this could be even better. If I could afford two or three hundred pounds on one of these cards, how much better could it get? Um, so I always you know, wanted slightly more out of it. Um, I did manage to get one of those FMV cards in the modern day. So Dan, if you have found a source for real magic specific ISOs of these games, I'd love to get a hold of a copy of some of them. I did get hold of Return to Zork and um, what's the other one called? There's another one. Can't remember. Yeah, there's it now. quite it's a lot less... on archive.org. There's actually they're not always advertised as the real magic versions, but yeah, there are, there are a few on there. If you search like FMV versions, yeah, there is most of yeah. them are on archive.org. Excellent. Okay, I'll look for those. Um, I can't say I was massively blown away when I did finally get to try a real magic card. It was better, but then of course I'd adjusted so much to further <laughs> developments in FMV <laughs> beyond. It was hard to go back and say, wow, this is amazing because we've had DVD and Blu-ray and everything since. But um, it was definitely high on the wish list of luxury items at the time. Now, if we're talking specifically about saucy games, Chris, um, ignoring the obvious Leisure, Leisure Suit Larry series, uh, there was one called Voyeur on the CDI. I don't know if you remember that. So the CDI <laughs> was aiming its whole console at more of a mature audience. Um, and so they were bringing out some adult discs for it. And, and Voyeur was like a private detective game with saucy scenes. Um, wasn't a bad game if you look at the reviews. It, it's got multiple endings, good and bad, and um, seems like quite an interesting game. There Creepy was another game. one. Is it a creepy game? I've not played it Very myself. <laughs> okay. Um, and I I always remember when I was buying my Amiga games, there was this period when I went into, um, it would have been Boots. I went into Boots to buy a game. And there was this game on the shelf that was wrapped in brown paper for the Amiga because it was so adult, you weren't even allowed to see the cover. Now, I can't remember. I don't think that was Voyeur. I don't think that came out on the Amiga. There was another slightly weird one called Fascination, which was adult. Might have been that. Was it maybe Rise of the Robots? <laughs> no, it wasn't Rise of the Robots. No, it wasn't that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, if, anyone, if any of our listeners can remember the brown paper wrapped Amiga game, might have been on PC as well that came out. Um, 
let me know. I, I remember specifically when I was buying this game, things like Last Ninja 2 were on the shelf. So we're talking early 90s here. Um, I'd love to know what that was. Um, and then before we got into that period of, of FMV, I remember getting more and more excited about uh, photorealism, not necessarily FMV. And you could see that uh, specifically in the point and click adventure games. If you look at the Sierra games as they progressed from simple graphics in the 80s through to something like Police Quest 3, where everything's kind of digitized and huge number of animation cells in each character, um, different angles of all of the character sprites, depending on what scene of the game you're in. It was incredible what they were doing with that. And that that was really peak for me because it retained the playability. As soon as we tipped over into FMV, it all became very, very linear in all but the um, but the few exceptions of the genre. And those big exceptions for me were Under a Killing Moon, brilliant Tex Murphy private detective um, game set in the future, had people like James Earl Jones in it, had a, had a mega cast. It was on something like six four or six cds it was a huge game but it had gameplay it had 3d elements where you would walk around point and click gameplay from a from a first person perspective great 3d graphics and wing commander 3 obviously flight sim in space um mark hamill and the and the big furry karathi that you were fighting against or were somewhere on your side um i felt that is where the balance got right but that was a few years into the big fmv surge before that we had a lot of linear tripe that we had to wade through to get to that point. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Neil, about the later on ones. I I, I enjoyed the later on ones. I, um, I've often talked about how I like picking up the box for a game and looking at novella and so on. The cutscenes you got, the FMV cutscenes, they could really add to things. They could help you fill in the gap when you're playing the game once you've seen the little cutscenes and so on. So they're good. They help things like Command and Conquer, even even where it's it's basic like that. But the initial ones, the um, the ones that came out right away with the with the kind of whole multimedia PC thing was going on, Seventh Guest and so on. I didn't have a powerful enough PC in a CD-ROM to play those initially. At that point, I was spending all my money on booze, holidays, festivals, etc. And I've gone back a, a few times and tried to play them, and I've not really managed to get into them. Um, I think they were fairly low production, and I think they relied on the wow of FMV to really pull it off, uh, and that doesn't quite cut it now going back. But that said, that said, I think you need to give these games a proper crack and try as, as best as you can to immerse yourself and not just click through them in a window on an emulator and say oh this is naff isn't it i think you need to to, to try your, your hardest to enjoy them the best you can so i've noticed in recent years that i enjoy retro more when i do that in an original system or something that feels like it rather than an emulator window so i hope to try them that way yeah, I think with some of those early FMV games, you have to go into the game with a mindset of, okay, I'm going to be sat and I'm going to be watching lots of video. If you try and treat it like um, a, a normal video game, you start just sort of skipping the video and thinking it's getting in the way of the gameplay and you can't treat it like that. It's a different kind of experience. Yeah, and I think some of them as well, it kind of ruins the game a little bit when they're the really low production standard. I remember the the um, the FMV version of Road Rash on the uh, on the PlayStation and the 3DO. It looks so like low production values, and the rest of the game was so slick. And a lot of them back then, I mean, they wouldn't even go to the effort of hiring film crews and everything. Like a famous example would be um, 
uh, Chaos Engine. No, it wasn't Chaos Engine. It was um, Cannon Fodder on the CD32, where literally the guys from Sensible so- Software went out with a camcorder into a field and just filmed it. So, <laughs> yeah, sometimes there were a little bit naff. <laughs> yeah. So I nice. thought the CD32 was the only version of Cannon Fodder with that uh, video intro, but I fired it up on the 3DO recently. And when you load it on the 3DO, you've got the choice of that intro and then another intro, which is kind of CGI rendered. So they're both mm. on there. Um, looks about the same though, even though the 3DO has got better you know, FMV capabilities, it's probably from the same source. So the video looks about the same as the CD32, yeah. Hmm. Interesting. I'm not surprised though that that Chris has picked a porny game for his story this week. <laughs> that shame that you, was a, Look, I don't submit the stories; we just choose them. Uh, but we'll actually come to that. Interactive <laughs> video is something though that just keeps on trying to work. It keeps popping up. Um, only a few years ago, I was actually referencing it in educational technology workshops and showing an amazing piece of work actually by the London Police called "Take the Knife." Uh, what that was was it was an interactive video on YouTube where the viewer would make choices at the end of each video sequence and it was actually very well done Uh, and it was designed to engage youth and combat knife crime in the UK. It's actually an excellent example, I think, uh, of interactive video done well and there's not many out there. Um, I'll I'll link in the show notes to where you can find that the, the beginning of the sequence I was having a mess about with it recently, and I'm not too sure that it actually works in modern browsers, and it certainly didn't work, sadly, on my um, uh, smart TV. You couldn't select the choices at the end of each video. Still worth a look just to see what they were going for, you know, decision tree-style stuff with video in between. Um, and, of course, more recently, we we had um, Bandersnatch on Netflix, uh, which was another stab at doing exactly the same thing again. Um, so while there is something decidedly dodgy stab. Uh, stab, yeah, that wasn't on purpose actually. But anyway, um, no, there is definitely something decidedly dodgy feeling about FMV gaming, uh, but it's also a format that just refuses to die and occasionally is done well. As for Sacred Pools, well, you can check out the story on PC Gamer and the video, uh, but also allegedly, thanks to an ex Segasoft employee, David Gray, alpha build- builds for the game are available on gamingalexandrea.com. Uh, And again, we'll put links in the show notes. And from that site, it looks like uh, perhaps this actually does have some source to it because there's a a few other screenshots and and videos available. However, it is described... When you say source, do you mean mean the the source or the sauce? (laughs) What? (laughs) Not the source. Moving on. (laughs) Anyway, I'm going back to your point, Dave, about being this being porny. Um, It is actually described as not being overtly sexual. Um, It really is just that some of the costumes are just a little bit more revealing. Um, So a bit like any episode of Buck Rogers from my memory. The game was never finished. We've we've already mentioned that um, as apparently the, the developers basically didn't think it was very good. Nevertheless, uh, there's versions for the Sega Saturn, uh, PC, and even the Sony PlayStation, and they're all available for download on that site. Check it out. If you look back at the history of 3D games and micros, something we seem to often touch on here, and perhaps because it seems to be one-off, if not the most popular format for modern games, then there are some wonderful titles. I'm sure I won't cover all the titles, but here are the ones that, that come to mind, for, for me at least. Um, and it starts with Elite on the BBC Micro, and then the Mercenary series from Paul Wokes, originally on the, the 8-bit Atari, and then around the same time, LucasArts, 
um, with, uh, or it might be Lucas Games, I'm not sure, uh, Rescue yeah. and Fractalus on the 8-bit Atari and also the same engine, Corona's Rift and the Eidolon. And then later we get Midwinter from Mike Singleton, originally the Atari ST and Corporation in the Atari ST and, of course, Midi Maze in the Atari ST and then... Um, you get to DOS and you get Catacombs and Wolfenstein 3D, Doom, Quake, etc. You can see where modern FPMs, FPS games have their solid roots. And of course, Ultimate Underworld is where things like Skyrim and so on come from. But I've missed an important one out, and I think um, most, if not all of us here, um, have a lot of fondness for. And it's one we, we brought up a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Quake on the ZX Spectrum. And it's the Freescape engine from Ian and Chris Andrew of Incentive Software. Um, they, of course, used the most powerful development machine they could get, the 128-kilobyte disk-based Atari. Atari? Not Atari. Amstrad. I'm getting my fanboys <laughs> mixed up here. Uh, Amstrad CPC 6128. And starting work in 1985, they brought the first of three games, Driller Out, two years later in 1987, the other two being Total Eclipse and Castle Master. So each of the three games has a sequel. Driller, known as Space Station Oblivion in some territories, where you explore an abandoned space station, and the back of the box says, um, solid 3D, solid three-dimensional landscapes like you've never seen before. Thanks to Freescape, it feels like you're actually there. Interact with weird alien mechanisms, avoiding the Ketar's defences, and gain access to the many sections of the moon Mitral. Experience Driller and Freescape in action. There we go. Um, all of the games contain 3D shaded objects, puzzles, and a bit of combat, and importantly, adventures and exploration, and a bit of environmental storytelling, which is the cornerstone of, of most of the games I love. And I have to mention the absolutely stunning artwork from Steiner Lund on the front of Driller. Uh, it's great. Um, now, when Driller was coming out, I remember Amstrad Action going um, going really mental about it. They were really salivating about it. They even had a competition uh, to create a sound effect and get it into the game. And I can't find any info on who won or even if the competition actually did go ahead, whether it was cancelled. Um, but Amstrad Action loved the game and the review and they kept talking about it. So it was a big feather in the Amstrad CPC's cap. And I'll come to the other two games afterwards, but the reason why we're talking about today um, is Richard Shears submitted a story for us to look at. A chap by the name of Gustavo is nearing completion of a Freescape engine for modern and actually retro computers in the phenomenal Scum VM project. Neil, I know you've played um, Driller, um, but do you remember anything about the hype at the time uh, from the Amstrad magazines? And do you fancy playing the game? The old, the old games are a new engine. Um, I've got to be honest, I don't remember the hype of Driller. I was probably a bit young at that time. Um, I do remember Total Eclipse in my Amstrad Action magazine. Um, and there were, there were a few games over the decades where I would always go back to those reviews just to look at the pictures if I didn't have the game. Uh, things like I had a Origin Systems newsletter with um, screenshots of Ultima 7 before I got hold of that. And I would just look at that constantly thinking i've got to i've got to upgrade to a pc so i can play this game total eclipse was another one that i would flick back to on the magazine an awful lot had that biplane parked outside of the pyramid two things that i love egyptian history and and aviation i had to play this game and it was in fully shaded 
you know, colorful 3D on the Amstrad. Um, so Total Eclipse, and then I did finally get hold of Total Eclipse. Uh, and, and the thing that struck me, and this is true of Driller as well, but um, I played Driller when I went back and, and enjoyed it on emulation. I played Total Eclipse back in the day, and it was the the eerie, eeriness of the, the quite empty 3D space that, that you inhabited. And this is something we talked about when we spoke about horror games recently. I think the Freescape engine came up in that discussion. And just the eeriness of a very empty, perhaps the first 3D or fully filled polygon landscape that you've ever inhabited in a video game. Um, it's all a bit new. It's all a bit weird. Mix that in with some nice music and a, and a good storyline. And you can really get lost in this, despite the fact that it would have had a very low frame rate. And um, to be honest, it's a miracle that we got any kind of frame rate whatsoever. And it wasn't just a, a flick screen dungeon crawler, as we were used to in, in other genres. So the fact that we had any kind of frames per second in a 3D fully explorable world was was a miracle but i don't remember that ever bugging me dave i don't remember low frames per second in these games ever bugging me at all so i'm interested to go back and play these on scum vm uh, i'm i had the pleasure of interviewing um eugene uh, sandalenko some years back who is of scum vm fame he's, he's heads up the project there i believe i think he still does um and a uh, very passionate guy, the right guy to have at the helm there, really pushing all facets of ScumVM. Um, and I was really quite surprised to see Freescape become a part of ScumVM because I do associate that project with point and click. But obviously the scope of ScumVM has really expanded over the years to encompass anything around adventure, I guess, not just point and click. Um, so yeah, surprised to see it. And I've seen it's got certain features. For example, you can now play Driller and total eclipse in 4k now how that's going to translate <laughs> i don't know but i sure as hell am going to try it 60 frames per second 4k total eclipse is it going to invoke the same eerie feelings i don't know it's a bit like going back to try old fmv games the technology has moved on can you can you get that same nostalgic feeling with that kind of 4k remaster don't know but i'm going to sure as hell try it well, I think the gameplay will still be there for these. Uh, these are kind of puzzly adventurers with a, a little bit of combat. Uh, so I think the gameplay will still be there. The frame rate um, for, for uh, our younger audience, uh, when we're talking about frame rate in, the, in terms of three or four frames a second, you might think that's unplayable, totally unplayable. I understand why you think that, because modern games are designed to be played at 30, 40, 50, 60 frames per second. Total Eclipse and Driller and so on were not. They were they, they were designed knowing that you'd only get two or three frames a second. So they, they do work okay that way, but they'll be great when you've got them in, the, in high FPS. Um, the next game they brought out after Driller was Total Eclipse, um, set in Egypt. It's more a puzzle game than Driller. There's lots more puzzle Um elements in it and just like neil i'm right into the egyptian theme so it was right up my street um driller had a sequel called dark side and total eclipse had one called uh the sphinx jinx um but i don't know it was sold separately i think they just bundled it in with it to to, to up the value of it and the last of the three games was castle master um and castle master is a puzzle exploration game in a castle um eat cheese for food and there's mice um it's set in and around a dark and eerie castle cross a shark infested moat and risk life and limb in a desperate rescue big bid and i'm pleased to see a bit of gender equality because you could choose to rescue either the prince or the princess 
Uh, and the sequel, The Crypt, seems to be the same deal as the original Total Eclipse 2 and so on. It's sold as an upgraded version, although maybe our viewers will have seen it on its own, but I couldn't see it. Now, as far as ScumVM that Neil's touched on, it did originally come out for LucasArts uh, point and clicks. Uh, so you Monkey Island and so on. But it's now got loads of games in it, even including Ultima is in there now. Um, perhaps you could think of it as a little bit like MAME or Mr. Project. It, it's going to be the way that we enjoy things in the most authentic way we can. Um, it's a collection of games that run the original game files through a new engine, or if there is the source code there, an enhanced source port. So the important thing is it's not got they haven't recreated the data files you need to supply it with the data files in order to run the games so it, it, it's fairly true to things that way um it, it's such a monumentally important project in game preservation and i actually run scum vm most often on a windows 7 pc that's connected through kvms and switches etc to a 21 inch crt mt32 pi and it shares a keyboard and mouse with my other retro PCs. So I'm typing in the same keyboard I would be if it was on the the old 386SX or the, the, the Pentium. So it feels as it, to me, I'm using the same mouse keyboard and, and, and uh, monitor. It feels like I'm playing on the old machines, even though I'm not really. Dan, you recently had Paul Gregory on. From his interview, I know that he was there at Incentive for all the free skate games. What do you think of all this? Yeah, I mean, my experience of those games is a bit more recent because um, yeah, I was a Commodore Plus 4 user until uh, <laughs> late 1991, so we didn't get any of those uh, Freescape games on there. Uh, but my main memory of um, using Freescape as a kid was my teacher actually brought in 3D construction kit on the Akon Archimedes in one of our IT classes one day. And I remember being amazed that you could build these 3D worlds on a computer and that's a memory that still sticks with me. And then um, I got, a, I think there was a demo on um, Amiga Formats cover disc of 3D Construction Kit a bit later on too. So yeah, I do remember playing with it back then and hearing the story from um, from Paul. I mean, the fact that that could even run on a, a ZX Spectrum, you know, it was on so many different platforms. It just seemed like, obviously today with, you know, stuff like virtual reality coming back and uh, VR chat and Horizons, that kind of thing, you know, 3D virtual worlds are like all in vogue now. But the fact that they were doing this 35, 40 years ago is just insane. Yeah, the, the interview that you've, you've done with um, with Paul is actually really, really good. Uh, it does explain a little bit of how the it works and what they were trying to do and all the rest of it. But yeah, it's a really good interview. And he did mention on it uh, that he was going to do a remake of Driller. And your interview was, I think, in September. And hmm. since then, he has actually done it. I've not I've not had a chance to play it. I only found out about it as part of the research for this. So I've not had a, a chance to do it. But the link is in the show notes. So there's a remake on uh, Indigo Beetle. Uh, now, I asked Gustavo about um, his project, some questions, because I know you'd all want to know a little bit more. So he now lives in Barcelona, but he's from Argentina, and he does work in the computing industry, but he isn't a programmer day-to-day. -day. And he played Castle Master in DOS around 1992, and that's what got him interested in Freescape. And this isn't his first scum VM endeavor. He's done a couple of engines in there, Private and Hypno, which are for some, some more niche games from the 90s. Uh, Dave, uh, you mentioned a Driller remake. Um, 
I've just uh, checked it out while you were talking about it. I have managed to die in the space it's taking you to tell us it exists. <laughs> me load it and me play it. It was published 13 days ago. So this is a very new thing and it's on yeah. indigobeetle.itch.io forward slash driller. Really nice, smooth 3D yeah. remake of driller that you can play in the browser right now. So any old driller fans, go and give that a go. Yeah, I played it for maybe as much time as you have there because I didn't have time to play it. But yeah, really smooth, feels like Driller. Yeah, so um, give that a shot. Um, now, Chris, you're already a fan of these games. I know that already. I've, I've watched you play Driller. Um, are you looking forward to this? I am. I have to also jump back to, to Dan's um, point about 3D construction because I was a huge fan of that. It was uh, June 1991, Dan, um, issue 23. That was the the cover disc that included the demo. Uh, I've got a copy of it on my shelf, so that's why I knew that definitely existed. Um, and yeah, uh, but in terms of in terms of the games, um, I think I'd look forward to seeing Castle Master. And the reason why is because that is the one that actually escaped me back in the day. And I remember being extremely excited. As in, you know, I was playing on the Amiga by then, um, and and the Amiga was great for freescape games. And seeing the write-ups and the screenshots in the magazines and even I, I was defending the graphics style of the Freescape engine against my schoolmate, Lee, and we're still mates, hi, Lee. Um, but he was he was more into things, you know, the dungeon crawlers like Eye of the Beholder. So he was sort of arguing that that was better graphics where, in my mind, Freescape was better because you had this complete freedom of what direction you looked and and this feeling of total immersion and and the ability to walk in any direction, uh, which was lacking from the dungeon crawlers, which were, were quite flat, you know, really. Um, and, and he even enlisted the help of the teacher. He got the teacher and said, "Look, look at the screenshots. This is the one Chris reckons the best. This is the one I reckons the best." Which in trying to trying to enlist the teacher into this playground argument, essentially, which was really funny. <laughs> uh, the teacher didn't really weigh in. Um, but yeah, I, I oddly, even though I was really excited about Castle Master coming out, I never ended up getting my hands on it. So um, perhaps, you know, with a new improved version um, through Scum VM, now is the time. That would be good. Yeah, I, I Beholder is, is one of my favourite games. Mm. Um, I don't like the idea of having to choose between between the, the Freescape games and I the Beholder and say, well, one of them's good, one of them's bad. Um, I the Beholder has some beautifully hand-drawn pixel art uh, graphics from westwood associates it, it's great um everything about it is good but it, it, it it's effectively 2d although it's a 3d game you're exploring everything is presented and drawn in 2d it's not doing the same thing as freescape at all so it's unfair yeah totally they're different genres you can't really compare them yeah i think it was only because that castle master was essentially in a dingy castle and oh, the beholder is walking around you know dingy yeah. catacombs Hence the comparison happened, yeah, in, in the argument. But, yeah, I totally agree. Okay. They're different okay. genres. Yeah. Gustavo hopes to have a playable final proposed version of Driller in testing by the end of the year. And um, he hopes to get all the Freescape games working eventually on it, uh, although not the 3D construction kit. I don't think that's part of the uh, – that's ever going to be part of Scum VM. And something I think is great is going he's going to allow you to pick and choose facets from different versions. So you could play the, the Amstrad CPC version with music from another version, for example. Um the game is 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 not yet in Scum VM, but it will be soon. I love these games. I really love games with a real sense of exploration and environmental storytelling, and that's what they did with Freescape to the limits of what they could do. You really felt as if you were finding stuff out, Chris. What would be cool, even if they're not gonna um support 
3D construction kit itself is if they could support games that were created using it. That that would be nice. Um, they, they probably won't, but that would be cool. That would be good. That that would mean that you could create games and then play them in really smooth FPS with um, less jagged lines in the graphics and so on. So yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to this coming out. Um, I think it's going to be great. As a as a fan, I know we've got all of us seem to be fans of 3D construction kit back in the day. I had it with the little gold VHS that came with it to give you the tutorial, and we've spoken about it before on the show. But Dave just said if you could make games in it, it would be really great. I've got to say it, it it's pretty clunky as an interface to create games. There are there's there've got to be better ways of making retro 3D games in the modern day. But it's simple. I mean it's clunky, but it, you could do stuff in it. I, I I've done stuff in 3d construction kit and i'm not particularly creative but i i managed to do a little a few little things in it and and that that that's testament to how good it was it's simple and it's not it. it's very simple to design a 3d world but when you break out into the basic language underneath you've really got to learn how to use yeah. that properly yeah. it's, it is very powerful underneath yeah yeah so um yeah um have a look at the the, the game that came out a couple of weeks ago uh, and look forward to seeing it on scum vm be able to play all all six of these games wonderful games uh, hopefully in the near future time now for our question of the week so last week's question was all about cars in video games that's video games and not video game <laughs> let's stir up that whole comment section again for those who don't know i got a lot of stick on youtube last week for using Video games console in a title and not video game console. Apparently in the US, it's video game. Perfectly acceptable to say video games in the UK. It's even right there in the dictionary. So don't tell us off. Don't tell us Brit YouTubers off for using video games console, please. There you go. That's my public service announcement in, in the defense of all British YouTubers. <laughs> can, can I just, just to, to settle everyone down and stop the comments coming, say that consoles are rubbish and microcomputers are where it's at? Oh, Oh, yeah, just throw that in there, Dave. Thank you. Take the heat off me. Taking one for the team. Good man, good man. Um, so our question of the week last week was all about video games. The question was, <clears throat> which is your favorite car from a game and why? Did you love a game? Um, did your love of a game inspire you to buy the featured car, as it did Chris with his Porsche and not that Ferrari, which he never bought? Um, personally, I've never been... Oh, this is Duncan's answer he's put in the notes. Personally, he says, I've never been moved to buy a car because it was featured in a game, but my, I may have bought one because I loved the look of it when it was used for a Transformer figure. Oh, Binaltech Laser Wave, if you want to look it up. Binaltech, does anyone know what the Binaltech Laser Wave is? Let's I don't remember like that one. Car. Doesn't I do sound like a Ford Escort. Well, well, no, that's the Transformer's name, isn't it? Um, ah. Oh, it looks like a Nissan... No, it's it's a Mazda... Looks kind of GTR like, but that's look, Nissan. Um, it's a Mazda. Is that an RX? Let's get a car on, car guy on. Chris, it. I'm, I'm I'm waiting for the pace to load. My connection Rx really expert. is bad today, isn't it? It's not loading. Binal Tech Laser Wave. It sounds good. Yeah, it's a Mazda RX8. Oh, okay, right. There you go, Mazda RX8. That's so, a fairly modern yeah, car. Yeah, okay. I'm with you on Duncan. With with you on that Duncan. I like that. Um, so let's go to our listeners' answers this week. Yeah, well, Transformers came back, didn't they? They, yeah. they weren't all just about the 80s. Did you know that they were robots in disguise? No. Didn't know that, Dave. Um, so our first answer of the week this week comes from Richard Shears. He says, having enjoyed the delights of OutRun on the Amstrad CPC, mm -hmm, really enjoying the lovely leisurely pace, 
and gentle, one might even say lethargic way of the screen <laughs> casually redrawing. <laughs> this fitted really well with my abilities to drive racing games. So with that, I have to say, probably unsurprisingly, my answer is Jaguar XJ220. This was one of the first Amiga racing games that I really enjoyed. Why aren't I answering Lotus? I hear nobody ask. Well, simply, I bought Jaguar XJ220 and loved the presentation and big big box, whereas I didn't get any of the Lotus games until much later, and they were in the form of biro-labeled discs. And yes, he goes on to say, Stunt Car Racer was my first home micro-love, but I couldn't use that as an answer because the question was specifically worded so that the car from Stunt Car Racer wasn't a viable answer i guess yeah it's it's not a car that you can identify is it as a, as a real car what are you holding up there dave the manual for jaguar xj220 to show it has 70 pages <laughs> because wow. listeners need to know that okay okay very important and then chris uh, richard rounds off by saying the answer to the second part was yes it did inspire me but sadly the jag was well out of my price range therefore i purchased the, purchased the be- next best substitute the practical sister of the Jag, the Ford Capri, my first car. I mean, they were all but identical in everything but the price, right? That's, that's, surely the Ford Capri must have been in a video game. I guess I not. I doubt it was. It's a bit too early for that. It's a bit too English for that. Seems a shame. Mm, although the Lotus is very Seems English. Seems a shame. Yeah. yeah. But the, um, the, the Jaguar XJ220 as a choice, fantastic. Um, I mean, it's an iconic car, but the music in that game is just stunning. Mm. I love it for that reason. Uh, Dan, have you got the page open there? You Would you like to read the, the second answer from Frosty Cheesecake? Yeah, so Frosty Cheesecake says, uh, getting a Toyota C... What is that? Celica? Celica. I'm not a car guy. You might be able to tell. <laughs> um, a GT4 ST205. I'm modding it to look like the one in the Sega Rally nice. series. Seems like a fun project. And entirely within the realms of reality. Um, he said he just needs to learn how to drive first. <laughs> <laughs> good choice. Good choice. Uh, Dave, do you want to read the third one from Generation what? Pixel? Uh- I had the Jaguar XJ220 box out because I didn't allow me around. I bought a Jaguar and then I bought this game for the Amiga because I thought, oh, I like Jaguars now. Um, but it wasn't an XJ220 Generation... you bought. No, it wasn't. No, it was a more modern one. <laughs> um, Generation Pixel says, too easy. It has to be the Lunar Buggy in Lunar Jetman. Why? Because it's indestructible. Meteors, asteroids, space debris of all sorts, smashing huge chunks out the moon surface, and not a single ding on that beast. If I were to be boring, though, it would be the Mitsubishi GTO featured in Gran Turismo, just because. Nice. It's yeah, not very I mean, boring still. Gran nice Turismo was, was quite interesting because you had that entry level that you started the game in, and it was all hot hatches, wasn't it? So th- mm. those those cars were kind of within the realms of cars that would become desirable as your first car if you weren't yet driving. You would look at things like the Suzuki Alto with some racing wheels on and think, oh, that could be my first car, mm. maybe. Yeah, <laughs> agreed. Um, Chris, the fourth answer, it's quite fitting from Rickalicious D. Do you want to read that one out? Rickalicious D? Oh, the Porsche from Chase HQ. Yeah, I never owned that Porsche. That was a 928. Um, but yeah, the Porsche Chase H from Chase HQ sounds amazing. You can crash into bad guys with it and it has a turbo button. Uh, yes. Uh, and no, he didn't buy it because he, he couldn't drive at the time. <laughs> That's apparently the only reason he didn't buy a Porsche 928. Yeah. What, what, what would your picks be, uh, chaps? Because, Neil, you, you hinted that you had an idea of what you would say, but then you, you went stum last week. So 
Well, of course it would have been outrun, but yeah. you know, that was easily guessed. Is that it? <laughs> I thought you had something else up your sleeve there. <laughs> oh, I didn't know if anyone else I didn't know if anyone else was gonna jump in with their choices. I kind of already have. Yeah, yeah. Dan, would you like a red one? Or a yeah, blue one? I mean yeah, Lotus Esprit, I'd say, would be my choice just because I love Lotus 2 on the Amiga. That was, it still is in my top five racing games of all time. And I used to work in um, in a nightclub and there was a guy who came to be, um, he was one of our sound engineers to like recalibrate all the speakers in the club. And he actually had a Lotus Esprit and gave me a spin in the car. Ooh, nice. um, I remember going over the flyover in Lincoln. I think he must have been doing about 70 miles an hour in a 30 zone. But um, yeah, I do remember the uh, <laughs> the experience of being in a Lotus was definitely something I remember ever since. So uh, yeah, if I could, uh, I could own one dream car, that would probably be it, I think. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, I do remember, Chris, now you mention it. I remember the game I was going to mention. Um, Supercars, the title screen, there was an Alfa Romeo yes. SZ on the title screen. I don't know if you remember. Yes. Quite a boxy looking beautiful. car, sort of muscle car. But that always yeah. stood out for me. So I always liked the look of that. Probably an absolutely awful car, probably plagued with problems, such as the, mm. the reputation of the Alfa. And I can say that as someone who's owned one, in, uh, not an SZ, but owned a couple of Alphas in the past. So I'm allowed three. to speak from experience. <laughs> I'm not just bashing it because <laughs> because everyone else bashes it. You know, yeah. I, I bought a Selly Speed once and oh! the predictable happened with that gearbox. So I've been there, done that. Yeah. But um, yeah, the SZ on supercars has always stood out for me. So that, that'll be my choice this week. Nice. Time now for this week's question of the week. If you'd like to participate, head over to reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro, where you'll see the question of the week pinned as well as our current episode. Um, if you haven't already done so, you can follow. Is that right? The right terminology for Reddit? Do you follow a subreddit? I think you do. I don't think you sub subscribe. Subreddit. Subscribe, join. you subscribe, join, whatever the button is, <laughs> come and join us. Um, if you're listening on your favorite podcast app, please do remember to leave a review if you don't, if you'd be so kind to, to do so. And you can subscribe to us on YouTube as well, just to help us with those numbers as we approach show number 100. And for show 100, we've actually reached out to a lot of our previous guests and asked them this very question. And we're going to ask you the same. And uh, there'll be well, not too many spoilers, but some of those guests will be back next week to uh, to um, uh, answer this question. And the question to you is, as we reach show number 100, thinking about the last 100 shows and thinking ahead to the next 100, what would you like to see more of, less of, the same of? What, what would you like to see change on this week in retro or not? That's what we want to hear from you. How can we improve the show? What do you like about the show? What do you want less of? Please don't say one of the hosts because that would get quite awkward. <laughs> but let us know what you'd like to see in the show. Who's your favourite host? Don't answer that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that, that's the question. How much of the week. hair should hosts have? <laughs> How much hair is too much hair? We look forward to your answers. Be as uh, verbose as you like. Thank you so much again to Dan for joining us today. Dan, just tell us one last time where we can find your fantastic new book. How can we back that? Yeah, so it's running on Kickstarter until um, December the 10th. Um, so like you said, we've got about 26 days at the time recording this, uh, probably a bit less by the time the show comes out. But if you go to just our website, theretrohour.com, it is there on the homepage. And uh, yeah, if you can uh, help us make it happen, that would be much appreciated. I think with some Kickstarters, um, some people like to kind of hold back and say, "Is that I'll back it if it gets backed. Please don't do mm. that because it's really key that you, if you want this, you back it right now, you put your support to it, uh, and then you know you make it happen. Let's not risk this not happening. I'm going to back this as soon as the show finishes. I know Chris, uh, 
Dave already has. Chris, have you? If not, why not? Of course not? I have. Why yes, have you not you backed have, right. it already, Neil? I've not backed no, it yet. I've known about this for days, I'm, yeah, Neil. I'm, I'm days extremely Neil, tempted. I'm going to check it out. Right. So I'm going to go yeah. and back it now. Um, and hopefully, definitely. Better late than never. <laughs> hopefully you guys will go and have a have a look and if you're interested do press that back button there's lots of um uh, nice pledges that you can choose from from a digital version up to the physical copy t-shirts all sorts of other things that cassette tape that ravi's furiously going to be copying right now on his uh, <laughs> <laughs> tape to tape deck um yeah check it out it looks fantastic and i want this thing to exist as always thank you for taking the time to listen see you next time and take care bye-bye Bye. Bye. Delayed bye. This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RMC The Cave, Chris from 005 Agima, and Dave. It was produced by me, Duncan Styles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favourite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash thisweekinretro to suggest and vote on the stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you enjoy our show and would like to support it, then please check out the link to our Patreon page in the show notes or description. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.